0: Good evening, Uh, my name is Alan Gotthard, I'm one of the pastors here at Sherwood, Um, been here for, wow, next month will be two years, Uh, that went by really fast. Um, So my wife Ashley and I, we have two kids, Uh, we have a daughter who's two and a half and we have a son who's about eight months, and my daughter has started doing something over the last two weeks that made me think about something for my message tonight uh, I think that, like, in parenting, they tell you about all the big learning milestones, but they don't tell you about, like, the little things they pick up in between that, like, you just don't really think about. Uh, but Emmy's mind has recently been blown by the fact that people have names. Uh, and, and I think that's mostly our fault because we name all of her stuff just what it is. So, like, her stuffed animal horse is, her, its name is horse. And we're, we're not, I'm not very creative when it comes to the names, but <laughs> the other day, Ashley called my name from the other room. She said, hey, Alan. And Emmy goes, wait a second. And she goes, daddy, Alan. And, I, and she, she finally figured it out, and it just blew her mind. And so now all she does is she goes around and she asks people their name. She doesn't care about remembering it. She just wants to know. She just, everyone's got one, I think, is what she's thinking. And, uh, and what it made me think about is that in her, her two and a half years of life so far, Uh, that she's picked up these little things, but it took two and a half years for her to even figure out that people have names, which seems sad, but it's a big accomplishment for her. Um, But what it made me think about was there's a pastor that I really admire, he said one time, he said that you have to read the Gospels a lot. You have to read about the life of Christ a lot in order to appreciate how funny Jesus is and appreciate his irony, and it struck me because I thought to myself, if I have to read the Gospels a lot just to realize how funny Jesus is, how much more do I have to read the Gospels to understand the rest of his character, to understand the other things about him? How long do I have to read about the life of Jesus to understand his humility or his anger or his, his lowliness or his power or his glory? How much more do I have to read to understand these characteristics of Christ? And the answer is I have no idea. I'm still working on it, I say, but I, I think this shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Um, I think sometimes simply because we've heard the stories before or we've read the Gospels all the way through once before, uh, or we we could say, well, I get the gist of it. Well, I kind of get the story, right? I get the point. Uh, but we treat Jesus differently when we do this from everybody else in our lives, Right? Like, we treat Jesus differently in this than I, would, than I would my spouse or I would friends in my life. For example, Ashley and I, we've been married for, for five years, been together six and a half, and I'm just now starting to appreciate how funny Ashley really is. And Ashley's been saying it for years, but I'm just now figuring it out. But that's not even to mention all the other things about her that I still have no idea, right? And, and it's the same for that's true for friends in my life that I've known for my life, there's still tons of things about them that I have absolutely no idea. And I wish I did, but I just don't. It takes time. And so I think it's fair to say that we know for everybody else, it takes a lot of time to get to know somebody, to get to know who they really are. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to any of us that it takes a long time in the gospels and reading about the life of Jesus to really get a glimpse of what Jesus is really like. And yet, when it comes to the character of Jesus, for a lot of us, there's a lack of understanding of his character and what he's actually like. We know what he did, but do we know what he's like? And so for the next few Sunday nights as a church, we're gonna be diving into the series about the different aspects of the character of Jesus. And tonight, we're gonna be looking at one of the, what I think is one of the most profound metaphors Jesus uses for his life. We're going to be talking about Jesus as the bread of life. And this is a metaphor that that reveals more of his character to me every single time I read it. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 6, verses 25 through 27, and then we're going to skip down to verse 35. And it says this, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, very truly, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then we'll go down to verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, as we get into your word tonight, Lord, as we seek to understand more of who your son is, what is he like? God, just like the people in our lives, as we get to know them, we fall more in love with them, we appreciate them more, we like things about them, God, help us to fall more in love with your son tonight through understanding who he is. Help us to understand him as the bread. Lord, we love you in your name, amen. So I wanna zoom out from this passage a little bit. To give us some context of where we are, the whole chapter of John chapter 6, the whole chapter is about Jesus being the bread of life. It's this one big, this central piece to a really long chapter that has like 70 verses, and the whole point is Jesus is the bread of life. But it starts with two of probably the most well-known miracles outside of the resurrection. The first one is the feeding of the 5,000. So we know the story. There's this really big crowd that follows Jesus up on a mountainside. And then Jesus turns and he looks at the crowd. And he turns to his, uh, his disciple Philip and he goes, man, how are we going to feed all these people? And Philip's like, what do you mean how are we going to feed all these people? He says it'll take half a year's wage just to even give them all a bite and that won't even cover it. And the reality is when he looks out at these people, all 5,000 of them is what the scripture says, but really we know there's probably a lot more than that. Scholars say it was probably 15 to 20,000 because back then, when they counted people, they usually are just counting men with families, so they don't count the single men, they don't count the women, they don't count the children. So, so we're probably looking at 15 to 20,000 people on this mountainside. And so, when Jesus is saying, "How are we going to feed this, these people?" Philip's like, "I've got no idea." And then, it, it, to me, it makes it even funnier when then Andrew walks up to Jesus and he's like i got these five loaves and these two fish. I hope that helps. Like, like it's like, what are we doing here? And Jesus, but what happens is Jesus takes these loaves, he takes the little that he has, he blesses it, he breaks it, and then he sends the 12 to distribute it, and it says that they distributed to each as much as they wanted. And it says when everyone had had their fill to eat, they went and collected the leftovers, and there are 12 baskets left over. And we'll get back to this in a minute because there's no coincidence that there's 12 baskets for the 12 disciples left over. And so after Jesus has done this, what's really, and this is really important for for the message tonight, what happens after he's fed these people is it says that they decided that they intended to make him king. They saw this miracle, the sign that he had performed, and they intended to take him by force and make him king. But it says Jesus perceived this and he withdrew to the mountain by himself. And so then after that, the evening comes, the disciples come down from the mountain, they get down to the lake, and they decide they're going to go to the other side, to Capernaum. Um, And so they do this at night, it's about a six-mile trek from one end of the lake to the other, And, uh, and Jesus doesn't make this trip with them, he stays on the mountain by himself. And the disciples get in the boat, they go across, it says they make it about halfway when a storm comes. The winds are raging, the waters are surging, and it's a big storm, and it says that they're afraid. And so this leads us to the second big miracle of this passage where Jesus, then they see him walking out on the water towards them. And it says that they're already afraid of the storm, but now they're afraid of this thing that's walking to them. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's me. And it says that they were glad to take him into the boat, and then the story ends. In John's gospel, it's weird because we don't get the rest of the story that a lot of us know, which is that he calms the storm, he speaks peace to the sea. Instead, in John's gospel, what happens is He just goes, we just go to the other side, and they move on in the story. And this leads us up to our passage, but what's so important is that when we read this in context, when we see this uh, as as we are heading up to this bread of life discourse that we're about to dive into, we see it as really the climax of these two miracles, and this is why it's so important we look at context because it's easy for us to look at this miracle of the fi- feeding the 5,000 and see it as simply a sign of Jesus' power and he feeds some people. It's easy to look at him walking on the water and see it simply as a sign of his power that Jesus can walk on water. But when we read it in context in John 6, it, it should become clear that they actually get their full meaning when we read it with Jesus being the bread of life. And what I mean by that is the feeding of the 5,000 isn't simply a display of his power. What we find out is the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is saying, I didn't come primarily to give bread, I came to be bread. You get to the walking on the water, and we realize that that Jesus is saying, you don't need me to calm the storm, you just need me in the boat. And, And so we need... Jesus in the boat, we need to see him as the bread, but we only see that when we read it in the context with these verses about him being the bread of life. And so after Jesus and the disciples, they go to Capernaum, it says that the crowd realizes Jesus is no longer on their side of the lake. So what happens is they come down and they are like, where's Jesus? So they get in their boats, they go to the other side and they're looking for Jesus. And so they get over there and they found him and they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? because they're looking at the boat and there's like, there's only one boat. We know Jesus didn't get in the boat. And Jesus answers in a way that only Jesus can get away with because he doesn't even answer their question, (laughs) right? He says, he says to them, truly, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. And so what does that mean? Why, why would he answer that to them? I think we can at the very least, and this is I think the very least we pull from this, is that they were searching for him in a way he didn't want them to search for him. He, they were looking for, them for, for, looking for him for reasons he didn't want them to. But, but why is this the wrong way? He says, you're coming to me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. But why is that wrong? And when the people are searching for Jesus, it's right after this bread of life, or right after he feeds the 5,000 with the five loaves, and what Jesus is saying is that you're searching for me not because you saw those signs that I did and want more of me. What you're, seeing, what you're doing is you're searching for me because you had your stomachs filled. And what's interesting, though, is that we look at this passage, and that's not really how it feels, right? It feels like, well, they saw the sign, they followed Jesus, they wanted Jesus, they want more of him. And, and Jesus is saying, no, that's not what you're doing. What you did was you saw the sign, but you didn't really see the sign, at least not in the way that I wanted you to. And we get some clarity on what Jesus means from from Jonathan Edwards, he's an 18th century pastor and theologian, and what he says about the glory of God. He says that the glory of God shines down on the person of Jesus, and it's then made manifest in these signs, and what the signs are meant to do are for the people to see the sign and to be prompted by the sign to follow it back to its source. The point is that they were supposed to see the sign and then want Jesus. The signs were meant to point to something greater than the sign itself. And you see, Jesus, his signs and his miracles, they weren't the primary proof of who he was. They were meant to show who he came to be. They, were meant to, they weren't meant simply to be signs of his power. They were meant to be signs of his mission, what he came to do. And so here's another way to think about this. With this glory of God shining on the sun, you can also think of it like the actual sun as it shines down on the earth. It's 93 million miles away. It takes eight and a half minutes for a ray of light to reach the sun. I don't know why that part's important, but science class. (laughs) Uh, So it takes about eight and a half minutes, gets down to the earth. All right, and what Edwards is saying is that in the same way the rays of light come from the sun, down to the earth, the glory of God comes from the Father, and we see it through Jesus. But what Jesus says that they missed, and this is what's so huge for us, is that they weren't coming to him for the signs. You see, the signs of Jesus, the miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, they're meant for our eyes to travel up towards the source Right to recognize there's something greater at work here. And so in the same way we realize that the light on earth comes from the sun, we realize that the source of the signs is what we're supposed to be looking for. But what happens next and what Jesus says is they weren't seeking him because of that. He said, you're seeking me because you ate the loaves and you had your stomachs filled. And again, think back to this analogy of the sun, right? We don't often walk outside and go, man, I'm I'm glad there's a sun today right? What we do is we walk outside and we just appreciate that it's light. We walk outside and we appreciate that the grass grows and our plants grow because of the sun, but we don't walk out there and say, man, I'm really glad the sun exists, right? We aren't often traveling the, the rays of light back to its source. In, in Albany, we might because it's rained for a month straight, so we appreciate the sun more than most, But but often we aren't appreciating the sun very often. And what Jesus is saying is that just like we don't do that, they weren't seeking him because of the signs and wanting more of him. And this is bad, and this is a problem, and Jesus doesn't want this. It's because something John Piper says about this that I think encapsulates it so well. This is the wrong motive for seeking Christ because they saw him as simply useful and not precious. They saw Jesus as simply useful and not precious. Think back to this feeding of the 5,000. They saw these signs they ate their fill, and it says, then they intended to make Jesus king. And now this isn't, they didn't intend to make Jesus king because they saw him feeding the 5,000, they now desire the glory of God and want his spiritual kingdom to come to pass on earth. No, they saw the signs and they thought, this is awesome, right? There's this, there really is such a thing as a free lunch. This is sweet. This guy's gonna solve all of our problems. If if he could just multiply bread and fish by just giving thanks, imagine what he can do to a Roman army. So they see him as incredibly useful, and that's why they want him to be king. And so they missed the point. They missed that the signs were meant to point to the glory of Jesus and to the mission of Jesus and to show something more significant was at work. And just like them, we are meant to see the signs and desire more of Jesus and not see the signs and desire more things for ourselves. So Jesus is saying to them, you saw the signs, but you didn't really see the signs. You saw the signs, and you got your stomachs filled. You saw the signs, and you wanted the product. Or this is what Jonathan Edwards would say. He says that they saw the signs, and they delighted in the products and not the person. And this passage is given to us as a warning to not do this exact same thing, that we don't get, up, get caught up in the product of religion, but rather the person of religion, which is Jesus. And that's the temptation for us, right? We may not necessarily name it this way, but that's the temptation for us that we we love the idea of Jesus when things are going well. We're all about Jesus when our stomachs are full. We're all about Jesus when we have a roof over our heads. We're all about him when we have a savings account that's where we want it. We're all about him when we're happy with our careers and where, where our families are. Or even worse, we don't have these things, and we look at Jesus as the means for getting them, and so Jesus just simply becomes enticingly useful to us. But something interesting happens in the comfort of having the stuff. Something interesting happens in the comfort of the stuff. We say we're thankful for Jesus, but often it's simply because we're thankful for what he's given. There's something about comfort and about ease that undermines our dependence and our recognition of Jesus. We say we want him to be king of our lives, but only in so far as we want the king to remain generous. We want him to be king because of how useful he seems to us, and and often when things start to fall apart, we lose a job or a family member gets sick or we we have uh, some unexpected expense come up and we cry out, Jesus, where are you? I'm drowning. But really what we're crying out is, where are you, comfort? Where are you, job? Where are you, health? And Jesus is saying, You're not crying out to me for me. You're crying out to me because you want more stuff. But it's often not until the things start to be stripped away that we start to realize Jesus is precious and not simply useful. We're meant to trace the gifts back to the giver. But so often we have a hard time taking our eyes off the stuff. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about in verse 26 when he says, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you had your stomachs filled with the loaves. And this fits actually right in with the purpose of the book of John. Right? The most, most scholars agree that the gospel of John is written primarily to display the glory of Jesus and not simply the glory of what Jesus does. Right? Because I think that's the temptation for us. We want the things he'll provide. We want the peace in times of anxiety. We want the courage during times of fear, the blessings that Scripture says that it'll offer us. But what this gospel is saying is that if you aren't following the beam of the gifts up to the giver, then you've missed it. You've seen the signs, but you haven't really seen the signs. You want the product, but you aren't wanting the person. A good test for this, and this is something that I've thought a lot about this past week, um, I'll give you two existential examples and one practical one. The first one is a test for this, and, and we need a test for this, and, and I think the, the main reason why is we often don't even realize that this is us. We don't, we don't often realize that we are seeing him as mostly useful and not precious. But we need a test for this, and, and a test that I think is, is helpful is if everything in your life was stripped away but you still had Jesus, would it be enough? And the next one is if you were offered heaven, but the, the mansion's removed, the crowns are removed, the inheritances are removed, the streets of gold are removed, but Jesus is still there, is that still worth going? And then the practical example that I think really touches home, at least it does for me, is this next week, if I were to lose my job, is the very first thing that I pray, God, I need a job, God, I need peace because I'm stressed out, God, I need you to fulfill this desire for me? Or is it, God, clearly I need more of you this week. I don't know how I'm going to provide. I don't know how my family is going to make it. But I know I need you and I know you know what's going to happen. And I think what happens, though, is that we replace a prayer for the, for the things or we, we, we replace a prayer for Christ with a prayer for the things. And we say we're really praying to God for help. No, no, no. We're really praying for him to give us the things we want. When really what he's saying is that you need me to get to be bread way more than you need bread. We easily fall into the trap of seeing Jesus as only useful and not precious. And that's the warning we see here in these verses. And so Jesus goes on in verse 27, he says this, "Do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval." So we're going to walk through this verse and we're going to connect it to this idea of Jesus being the bread of life. Um, But we're going to actually do it in reverse order because I want to leave you with the application that comes from Jesus saying not to work for the bread that spoils. So we're going to start with where it says, on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And so when we read that, for me, it immediately brings to mind Jesus' baptism. When, when God speaks from heaven and he says, this is my son and who I am well pleased, or, or his transfiguration when, when, it's, when he speaks down from heaven and says, this is my son whom I've chosen. And I don't think that's an accident because I think what Jesus is saying here when he says that the, the seal of God the Father is on me is he's saying that he says I'm God And it definitely means more than that. It has to mean more than that, but it definitely doesn't mean less. And so what we see here in context is Jesus is saying, I have been given authority by the Father to give you what I'm offering. He has the authority to give and to do the things he's saying. So he has the seal of the Father placed on him, and then Jesus says, do not work for the food that spoils, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. And I think the question that comes from this where he says don't work for the food that spoils and, and we might say I don't, I don't quite know what that means but he, he is saying I need to work for something and this something leads me to eternal life and so I, I need to figure that out. And, so, and that's exactly what they ask. He, he, we would ask well what is this work that I have to do to get eternal life? And that's what they ask in verse 28. They say what must we do to do the works of God or to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answers the work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus goes on to tell them that there is a bread from heaven that gives eternal life, and they say, give us this bread. And he says, I am the bread. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And I think what's, what's fascinating here is that Jesus is saying two things. The first is he's saying, I am this bread that leads to eternal life. What you are asking for, what God gives, what I've been given the authority to offer and to provide through the seal of God is myself. Think back to the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus came primarily not to give bread, but to be bread. He's saying, when I broke those loaves and passed them out, I will break myself and be passed out to you. I will be the drink poured out for you. I will be what leads you to eternal life. I will be what satisfies And he's saying, you need me in the boat way more than you need your storm to stop. You need me to be bread way more than you need me to give bread. You don't need the endless comfort. You don't need promotion after promotion. You don't need a full bank account. What you need, the thing that will satisfy you forever, is to see me as bread. He says, you have only to eat. You have only to drink. And only then will you be satisfied. And what he says when I'm the bread, and he says, eating is believing. Believing is eating. So what he's saying is that to eat this bread, you just have to believe that I'm the one. So the first thing he says is that I am this bread that leads to eternal life. And the second thing he's saying here is that if you don't see me, the son of man, the exact imprint of the radiance of God, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, if you don't see me as this bread, there's absolutely no amount of work that you can do that'll make me look like something to eat for you. There's no amount of work that you can do that'll make you willing to believe. And what he means by this is that if you don't see Jesus as the bread of life, if you don't see him as this radiant treasure that's offered freely to us, there's nothing you can do that'll make you want him like that. Piper gives this incredible, incredibly vivid example where he talks about, uh, imagine you're going through a forest and you're starving you're walking through the woods and you are craving food, you're starving, you haven't eaten for days and you come out to this clearing and you see at this clearing a table with a feast on it and you come running up to this feast, you're starving, you're craving the food, you come up to the feast, you sit down at the table and you look at the table and it's all made of plastic. You pick up the little little plastic piece of bread, you pick up the little plastic grapes and you look at it as something that this isn't going to satisfy me, I'm starving, this isn't going to do it. In that moment, you're standing before this plastic feast. There's no amount of work you can do that's going to turn plastic food into normal food. And that's that's what Jesus is saying here too, that if you don't see me as bread, you simply see me as plastic, you simply see me as useful, there's nothing you can do that's going to make you want me like that. It says that only the Father draws us and only then can we see him as bread. But I think the bigger problem, especially for for our context where we grow up, especially for a lot of us that grew up in the South, we grew up in church, I think the, the bigger problem for us is that we still believe that the feast is plastic. We've come to Christ. We have a relationship with Christ. We've heard the stories over and over and over. We get the gist. We know Jesus. We think we know him. We know what he did. But we still look at him as plastic, And so, what happens when we don't see Christ as the bread of life, and we only see Him as plastic? Is we say things like, "Yes, I have Jesus, but who's going to take care of my family?" Yes, I've got, I've got, I've got Jesus. He's over here, and that's awesome. But, but I really want a lake house. I've I've got Jesus over here, but who's going to heal my son? I've got Jesus over here, but who's going to do this over here? And so, what happens is we've never gone to the table to sat down and eat. We've never gone down to the table and said that, yes, Jesus, you do satisfy all the things. You do fulfill all the desires. You will give me all of the pleasures forevermore, the joy that comes in the presence of Christ, but I've never tasted it. And so I go on living as though I have to get the other stuff. C.S. Lewis has a quote in his book, The Joyful Christian, where he says, if you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in, but if you aim at earth, you get neither. What Jesus is saying is that the only way to a love more connecting, a peace more freeing, a strength more powerful, a joy more consuming is if you see me as bread. You can't aim at the gifts because you won't get the giver. If you aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in, but if you aim at earth, you'll get neither. You have to aim at the giver. You have to aim at Jesus as the bread, and then when you see him as your treasure, only then do you get everything else and I'll explain in a minute how that, how that really is the case, but it's only when you see him as the bread that you can eat and never hunger again. There's no amount of work you can do that makes Jesus the treasure. You either see him as the bread or you only see him as useful. And here's where this connects to the first part of verse 27, where Jesus warns us to not work for the food that spoils. We spend a lot of time in our lives working for Food that spoils, and this isn't a bad thing. That's what it means is that we spend most of our lives working for a paycheck to take care of our families. We spend most of our time working in our homes to take care of our kids, and these are all good things. But we spend so much of our time on these things, and what Jesus is warning us here, and, and what He's not saying, and don't hear me say this, Jesus is not saying don't ever work for that food. He's not saying go quit your job. He's not saying don't make money. 1 Corinthians tells us to continue working in what you were called to do. So Jesus is not saying you can't seek those things. The warning is that when we spend a lot of time in the good things, when we spend a lot of time in the workplace, in our family, with the gifts from the giver, the temptation is that whether intentionally or not, we start to believe that this is as good as it gets. The temptation is that we start to see the stuff as the best that it can be. This is what I'm after. This is as good as it gets. And so because of that, we make idols out of things like comfort and success and money and romantic love and status and freedom. And we work hard, but typically only as hard as it takes to accomplish these things. And none of these things are bad in and of themselves. The problem is, is that they spoil. And what I mean by that is that they just don't last. And and what Jesus is saying is that they are an incredibly precarious place to put your hope in. Because they just don't last. We, we, if we put all of our hope into something like a job, what do I do if I lose it? If I put all of my desire into my spouse, what do I do if she passes away? You see, it's not that these things are bad. They just don't last. And so what happens is that we treat them as if we're all that we have. And what we do is we put this Incredible burden on those things that they were never meant to hold up. And so, if if my ultimate hope is in my spouse, I put a burden on Ashley that she was never able to carry because I I seek her for my fulfillment, my contentment, my satisfaction, my unending love, my, my unconditional everything. And so, what do I do when she disappoints me? I'm crushed. I break, but she was never meant to carry that load, so she also dies under that weight of expectation. And the same thing happens in our jobs, too. When I put all of my hope in my job, all of my, my identity is wrapped up in my job, what do I do when I get snubbed for a promotion? It crushes me. What do I do when I don't get the raise I think that I deserve? My identity falls. It becomes less than. I am seen as less than. It becomes personal. I put my hope in something, and so what do I do? In order to preserve the thing that I've put all my hope in, I will then go outside of what Scripture tells me I'm able to do in order to keep the thing my hope is in. So when I have a job and I decide that this is the most important thing to me, and honestly, I just got to lie sometimes to make it work, I'm going to have to do it because this is where my hope is in. And what Jesus is saying is that this is an incredibly dangerous place to put your hope in because it just can't hold the weight. But I think that what we see in Scripture is that it's actually our default position to idolize these things. It is our default position of the heart to seek these things as ultimate things. But what Jesus wants us to see in this passage is that until we see him as the satisfying bread of life, we will continue to come after him simply for the things that he offers. He'll only be useful to us and not precious. And the answer to how do we avoid working for the things that perish, how do we avoid putting all of our hope in these things, the answer I think is actually um, somewhat surprising, or at least it was surprising to me. I was listening to a message by Tim Keller, who's an incredible pastor, practitioner, who just passed away, and it was a message about self-control, and what he said is that people often think that the way to accomplish self-control or to get disciplines in your life is simply it's a matter of willpower. It's a matter of saying, if I can get myself mentally to a place where my will is strong enough, I can resist the things that, should, that I shouldn't be involved in, and I can do the things that I should do. And so they would say, for example, that if you sit down at a table and someone places in front of you your favorite ice cream, what they would say is that you mentally have to get yourself to a place where you just can reject the ice cream. You have to create enough willpower in your mind to just say, like, I'm going to resist it. I don't need it. I don't want it. I have to create this resistance. I don't have this ability. I don't have the willpower for that. That might be the most important thing I say tonight. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But they say you have to mentally get yourself to a place where you can reject this ice cream. But what Keller says is that it's actually not true how we get self-control. What he says is there's a difference between willpower and joy power. And willpower is your own strength to elevate or to suppress your desires. But joy power is a joy that, or a greater joy outside yourself that helps you prioritize your desires. And so in this ice cream analogy, what joy power looks like is you sit at the table, someone puts your favorite ice cream in front of you, and what actually allows you to resist the ice cream is a greater love in your heart that's greater than your love for the ice cream. And so for example, if you are training for a marathon and you've got a race tomorrow and you love marathons, you love running, Stephen Durbin talked about running this morning, I also don't get it, but people love it. And so you run your marathons and they love it and you gotta be in top physical form to run your marathons and so you sit down, someone puts the ice cream in front of you, you'll be able to reject the ice cream if your love for running a marathon and your desire to perform well tomorrow is greater than your desire for the ice cream. If you're lactose intolerant, you'll turn down the ice cream if your love for comfort is greater than your love for ice cream. And sometimes the love for comfort doesn't win. Sometimes you still eat the ice cream. (laughs) But if you don't have anything like that in your life, you'll eat the ice cream, right? For a kid, they're not worried about their health. They're not trading love or passions for these things. And so they eat the ice cream. But what Keller argues is that it's actually having a greater love that allows us to keep the other things in check. It doesn't doesn't have to mean that what we avoid is bad. It just means there's something that we have that we believe is greater. And here's where this connects to our passage where Jesus says not to work for the food that spoils. The only way that we can avoid working for the food that spoils for making ultimate things out of good things is if I see the bread of life as more satisfying. When I look to Jesus and see him as more satisfying... I can avoid working for things like success and money and comfort as if they're the only things. They aren't bad. I just know that I have something greater that offers something that they could never offer me. I have bread that says I'll never hunger again. So I'm not shaken like the rest of the world. If I lose my job, my hope wasn't in my job. I'm not crushed to the core of being hopeless if my spouse dies because my hope's not in her. And that doesn't mean we don't grieve. That doesn't mean we don't have emotions. That doesn't mean we don't still seek these things in our lives. But they don't break us because they aren't our ultimate hope. It puts my hope in something eternal and secure. It allows me to face trials and difficulty with joy in all things because I have a satisfying feast in Jesus as the bread of life that will leave me full and satisfied all the time. And this doesn't mean we don't work hard. It doesn't mean we don't earn money. It doesn't mean we don't seek comfort. What it means is that we only seek them insofar as they don't come in between the dependence and the relationship and the love and the feast that I have in Jesus. What it means is that we aren't left hopeless and destitute and strung out when we're in storms because we know that we needed Jesus in the boat more than we needed the storm to stop. We have a greater love, a greater feast, and so we aren't looking for things to satisfy what Jesus has already satisfied. Jesus didn't come primarily to give bread, but to be bread for us. He doesn't want us to see him as simply useful and not precious. He's the bread that leads to eternal life. He is the all-satisfying bread, and when the priority of our hearts, when the treasure of our heart is Jesus, we feast on a bread that will satisfy us forever. Let's pray. God you are this bread for us. God even if we can't quite grasp grasp the fullness of what that means what we do know for sure is that you say that you are all we need. God but if I don't trust that I will continue to seek other things to fill my desires. If I don't trust you that you will satisfy all of my needs. If I don't trust that you say, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to me, then Lord, I will continue to replace you with things that are less than you. God, help us to see the feast as satisfying. Help us to see you as a bread that satisfies every desire. Lord, help us to, to believe and by believing we eat the bread of life, the all satisfying bread. Lord, we love you in your name. Amen. Y'all have a good night. We'll see you this next week. You!